Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Dr. Ryan Olson. Uh, he spent many years with Oregon Health and Science University uh, and is about to start a new program in occupational health psychology. Really exciting uh, at the University of Utah. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you with me. You have some amazing work that you've done over the years, particularly around lone workers, which is really what we're going to talk about today. Well, thanks so much, Eric, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and to have this kind of conversation about my work and about safety, health, and well-being in general. Excellent. And so the work you do on lone workers is quite unique in terms of the research and such a critical, important area. So tell me a little bit about your story. Obviously, you've studied occupational health psychology. Uh, tell me a little bit of your story and, and your interest in lone workers. Yeah, well, um, if we cut to the initial interest in lone workers, we'd probably start at graduate school at Western Michigan University, where I, I had a class with John Austin, who was my mentor, and we read a case study in a book that, that um, had bus operators self-monitoring their safety driving behaviors, mm -hmm. and they reported a the, the authors reported a reduction in injuries like 66%. And I just it was skeptical. It's, <laughs> to me, that sounds like a change from three to one injuries. And I just, uh, I don't know, I was skeptical and I wanted to replicate or partially replicate and see if this actually worked, if it actually changed behavior. So my thesis turned into a small study of four bus operators for a long period of time with uh, observers on the buses monitoring actual driving behavior. And um, to my surprise, using a, a behavioral goal setting and self-monitoring and feedback type approach, one of the drivers showed a very large improvement in one particular hmm. behavior, complete stopping at stop signs. And um, so that's really how I got involved with so-called lone workers was just kind of by chance that I read this study and I thought, I don't know if I buy that and I wanted to again <laughs> and I, I used it as a thesis topic. And then, um, so it was a very interesting, informative experience. I did a bunch of extra safety work with that uh, transit authority doing kind of a safety assessment of their historical injury and collision experience. But it kind of, my, my success with the thesis led to an opportunity to work with um, new flight students at the School of Aviation at Western Michigan. And that project really got me deeply involved in brand new uh, folks learning how to fly a plane, definitely a high mm -hmm. risk task. Definitely. And the, the big initial benchmark is when do you fly on your first solo? Right. So how well are students being prepared for that? When do they go on their first solo? Um, Predictor, we studied predictors of success doing that quickly and videotape landings. And you know, we could talk a lot about that dissertation, but 
it was that it, kind of a deep experience thinking about uh, those new people learning a high-risk, complicated skill set, and the system trying to do this safely with minimum risk to the students <laughs> and the instructors was kind of the next step. And after, so after my graduate training, um, when I moved to Oregon and was thinking about starting, uh, pursuing a grant-funded research program, I, it was really data that drove me next to truck drivers. So elevated injury rates, a range of elevated uh, health issues, including <laughs> obesity, high blood pressure, um, and uh, uh, got going with work with truck drivers, and then from there it built out to home care workers. So I think I can trace it all back to that sort of chance uh, reading a little case study in a graduate school classroom, and and now here I am, twenty years later, <laughs> <laughs> in this space. And one of the few researching this area is, and so important because a lot of the interventions around uh, occupational safety, particularly in the culture space heavy heavy focus on uh, interventions that work well in a shop floor setting, an environment where you've got teams, but it's much more different in terms of how do I connect with somebody who's working independently day in and day out. Uh, a lot of these methods do work, but this often so overlooked pieces. I think behavior-based safety, as an example, does not work particularly well when you've got only one person alone. Uh, so Tell me a little bit more about why lone workers are overlooked and some of the unique concerns that that relate to the work and the interventions in that space. Well, I think the, co the core reason is that the, the workers are uh, dispersed. They tend to work unusual schedules or in an unusual mm -hmm. places. And so it's just challenging to uh, find, get with the workers and um, get involved to study and work with them in a way beyond just doing survey research. And so just that barrier results in fewer studies being done with groups like bus operators, commercial truck drivers, home care workers. Um, and that's probably the fundamental issue. It, it has been tremendously effortful uh, over the years to conduct you know, for example, a large randomized controlled trial with truck drivers. We couldn't do it without the support of uh, amazing companies who basically volunteer to partner with a researcher mm -hmm. out of the goodness of their hearts and maybe the hope that our health research will encourage workers to stay with the company or to have good positive feelings about the company. So both employers and unions um, really donate a lot of their their time and service to help us get the work done. But I think it's really about the effort of getting involved with these folks. I think technology and, and wearable technology um, should help us tremendously now and into the future at, at getting more work done with isolated and dispersed workers, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so tell me about some of the most exposed workers uh, that, that are lone workers. and maybe some of the tactics that you've seen work in those environments. Yeah, I'm not sure I can say the most exposed, maybe it kind of <laughs> depends on what kind of hazards we're talking about, but in the spaces where I've worked, um, you know, there are people truly alone, like a commercial truck driver, but there are also small um, construction crews. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, for example, just at my house, I had all my windows replaced last year and it was a two person crew and we had a huge front picture window and <laughs> watching those, that two person crew handle that big picture window and have a near, you know, a close call was, you know, that's kind of lone work there too. You don't <laughs> have a, a team around you. It's just you and your partner and they do a lot of things alone during their work day. So um, just, I think I might add construction and utilities into the mix Yep. just because um, they're doing a lot of things alone and they do experience uh, elevated fatality rates and injury rates as well as all of the commercial drivers and uh, the home care workers that we work with. And I think when you talk about that construction crew with, with two people, you're, similar to pilots as an example where you've got two pilots there's also the element or, or you talked about utilities where you can have a small crew doing a job is there's the true loan worker but also in a small team I can keep what went wrong my near misses my close calls to let's let's keep it within our group in which case it acts and operates like a loan worker crew or and can work in very remote isolated environments so very much that similarity of how do we speak because that was one of the big advances in aviation is how do you get those two people to realize that there's value in sharing what went wrong um, in a flight? Yeah, and to look out for not just each other, but thinking about um, the, the broader workforce. So let's, I don't know, I, off the top of my head, I don't know about the company that installed our windows specifically, but let's imagine they've got 20 employees who all do this mm -hmm. and work. The crew that was working at my house um, if there's a safety committee that, that meets regularly, hopefully there is, um, these kind of close calls and lessons learned could be shared through that process uh, so that other workers can approach similar types of tasks in a, a safer, uh, less risky fashion. And um, so, but yeah, that communication is a challenge. I think with loan workers, I do think a lot about this, uh, um, a concept in behavioral psychology, uh, which is the free offerant. Um, mm -hmm. this, the behavior studied by Skinner and many other behavioral psychologists was named the free offerant because the, the organism was really free to behave any way they would like in the environment. Mm -hmm. and, and then the research was to study, well, how is that free behavior shaped by its um, antecedents and its consequences? And loan workers are really quite free when they're out on their own doing the work to do the work mm -hmm. how they want. Um, but they do have working conditions as well uh, that are uh, shaped by the employer and the design of the work. And uh, going back to my window crew, one of the first things he said after touring our house, the lead worker, was that this is a three-day job and I've been given two days to do it. So right off the bat, I knew <laughs> this working crew would be dealing with a safety productivity pressure because of the schedule for the work. Sure. So I remember when we were talking originally, you touched on new employees and the onboarding of new employees, and you had done, I believe, a study around how do you onboard a new lone worker um, because of the vulnerability of different shifts, all sorts of different complexities. Yeah, well, specific to onboarding and new uh, a new loan worker, you know, the 
like going back to the flight students, the question is, well, when do you let them really go out on their own? So there's, you know, some assessment of they have been trained, they are skilled and knowledgeable in their work, and um, that they themselves feel confident that they're ready to go and work on their own. Um, in bus operations, in the, the transit industry, where we've been working for the past five or six years uh, on a, a trial of an intervention for new employees, the bus operators have the chance to um, learn in the classroom together and on the road mm -hmm. together as a group or as a cohort, which is fantastic because they can bond with each other and get to know each other and help each other out as they're learning. Sure. And then once they move into the workplace, you know, there may be some monitoring of their driving with a coach or supervisor, uh, you know, maybe more frequently early on, but by and large, they're on their own pretty quickly. Um, but I, I do like um, in that model, some type of mentor coach um, or a class or a group that you can learn with. And most industries sort that out mm -hmm. and uh, employers will do that in a more systematic, more rigorous way, or all the way in a, you know, we've, we've had um, fatality cases here in Oregon where this, the story is particularly tragic, where somebody's quite new to the work site and, and killed within the first couple of weeks on the job. And one potential contributing factor in cases like that is usually that training probably was not sufficient uh, in terms of what are the hazards of the job and what are the ways that we uh, protect ourselves against those hazards? Yeah, I, I think that's critical. The, the element it's, I find is interesting is when you talk about the keeping the cohorts together, the mentoring aspects as well, how long, I don't know if there's an exact duration, but how long is it worthwhile to keep some of these elements in place? Hmm. Well, yeah, that's a great question because it's expensive to keep people right. in training. <laughs> you know, if you're not generating revenue uh, or out in service, that you're, that's a, a training expense. Um, there's a particular study I know by um, uh, the first author's last name is Breslin. I think it was done in Ontario, uh, Canada, and it was a study of workers' compensation claims for the first year of, a, of workers' experience. Mm -hmm. And the first month stands out like a sore thumb. The, really? the elevated risk for injury in the first month uh, is well above the rest of that first year. But it did take a full year to for the the relative risk to drop down to one. Um, hmm. So that study, to me, you know, if it if it plays out in the literature, suggests that that first month is a really important time for new people to be learning coached and trained and not just what they need to do in terms of uh, productivity or service but also safety hazards means of protecting themselves against hazards and safety procedures and processes including what to communicate and when so that employers know about hazardous working conditions that that could or should be um, eliminated or reduced through engineering controls or design sure. control. And so let's think about some of the approaches that you've seen that work well for loan workers, some of the key principles. Uh, you talked a little bit about the onboarding, the mentoring, uh, the cohorts. 
Um, I know when we connected, you touched on some elements around signals and work environment. Tell me a little bit more about some of the tactics that organizations can take to, to better shape the decisions yeah. of that lone worker. Well, I mean, working from top priorities in the hierarchy of controls downward, mm -hmm. I would just want to make mention that we have studied improving working conditions through physical environment changes in truck cabs, for example. So to reduce fatigue and, and try to benefit worker sleep, we studied an active suspension seat that reduces whole, whole body vibrations, which increase the risk for musculoskeletal disorders, but it's also fatiguing to get bounced around in a seat all day. Um, and then we also studied a therapeutic mattress um, that had the potential to maybe alter vibration exposures for team truck drivers who sleep in a moving vehicle. And then we supplemented those cab enhancements, really job job design changes sure. uh, with a behavioral program. So that's that's an example of just trying to work from working conditions downward to more behavioral interventions. And as a behavioral psychologist, I, mm -hmm. I tend to specialize in the, the behavioral approaches. Um, but I do work with engineers um, like Peter Johnson in that study to address working conditions. Um, related to that, my some of my current future plans are really focused on schedule regularity um, and consistency and how that might relate to sleep regularity and health and safety. Um, so I just start there. If we work downward to behavioral interventions, I think um, Emily Huang's safety climate research with, with, mm -hmm. with truck drivers suggests that lone workers like truck drivers are still sensitive to um, safety related communications you know what is my organization's priority is it really productivity mm -hmm. or is it really safety or is it kind of tied um, so truck drivers do form safety climate perceptions of the priority in the organization those perceptions do relate to their safety performance and motivation and those safety climate scores also predict future collisions and injuries in the trucking industry. So what that tells hmm. me is that loan workers may have fewer points of communication and it may be text messages or phone calls or an occasional meeting, but they're still learning from leaders in those communications what's really important and that's still affecting their approach to safety. It's interesting because it may actually skew the data, right? Because if I'm thinking about a team-based worker where there's maybe a huddle every morning that talks about topics, and then there could be some elements in terms of how we prioritize safety in the conversation, et cetera. But the lone worker is going to get probably significantly less data, and it may not be sorted in the same way. And so the signals might feel different. Yeah, Emily and her team uh, in their discussion argued that Safety climate is still a valid measure in trucking, but the responses are less shared among the drivers. So like in a manufacturing setting, the perceptions of the safety priority in the organization are more shared because the workers are together. They kind sure. of look side to side and upward to leadership to judge the safety priority and to kind of calibrate their perceptions of the safety priority. But for truckers and other lone workers, they, they, they will communicate with each other. Um, 
but the perceptions are less shared. Uh, uh, but those individual level safety climate scores were still predictive of future safety outcomes. So um, uh, that's an interesting question and um, that whole area of research is, is important and interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, the, it's quite amazing actually the way we develop shared perceptions of the safety priority and how consistently that perception of the safety priority relates to safety outcomes at work sites. Safety climate is, mm. as far as I know, the best leading indicator of future uh, injuries, collisions, incidents. This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com. And it just speaks to me to the intentionality because a lot of organizations, if you have a mix of, because when you talk about truckers as an example, they may have truckers that are in a lone work environment, but they may have distribution centers or logistics areas where people are working in a manufacturing-like environment, loading and unloading. And so the, the intentionality of the messaging may needs to be very catered to the audience if we want both of them to have the right message. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and who, who are the leaders influencing each group? Um, for truck drivers, the, the driver manager or, or dispatcher yep. um, it, who is helping uh, assign loads to them, support them when they have problems on the road. That person likely has up to 50, maybe more drivers on their um, board. Um, so that's a busy supervisor. They may not be called a supervisor sure. always. Sometimes they're called a driver manager, but they are a leader and the main source of information about the company and its priorities for that um, truck driver. And I recall a study once I read that just popped out at me Dispatcher responsiveness to driver concerns in a survey study had a 0.5 correlation with driver turnover. That's wow. a massive correlation. Like, so if I'm a trucking company and I'm having turnover issues, boy, are my driver managers important people. Their relationship with the drivers has a huge effect potentially on turnover. You know, of course, that's one study and that finding was particularly strong, but you know, I would bet on average that that would play out uh, if you replicated it or studied it at other places. And it's interesting because in a traditional context, people are gonna be thinking about the emails, the posters, the conversations, the huddles, the debriefs on safety, all the various focal points that exist, but the truck driver may be hearing disproportionately compared to the environment that's more, with lots of workers working together. And so their interactions may be a dispatcher all the time saying, where are you at? When are you arriving? All productivity, time base, follow through. Yeah. Yeah. And a driver might say, oh, I'm feeling run ragged. You know, that yep. was a super long day. I spent X number of hours, at, you know, waiting at the loading dock and 
you know, I could really use a little extra time before I pick up my next load tomorrow. And then if they get assigned a load that's another, you know, maybe it's a little bit earlier in the morning or at an inconvenient time, the message received is, oh, the, the my driver manager of the company doesn't really care about my sure. sleep fatigue uh, because they've just given me a work assignment that isn't consistent with my need to get rest. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, in the real world, all sorts of pressures like that happen all the time. And it can be really challenging for someone like a driver manager to make these complicated choices. You know, the freight's got to move and there may be only one person close to it. Um, sure. So there are some realities that constrain uh, leaders and workers' choices in situations. But, um, uh, you know, I think it's up to researchers and companies, unions, all to do our best to work together to understand uh, where we can have levers for change and where we can improve the lives of workers um, just so we can best support and protect them, uh, especially the people doing jobs that are very hard on their bodies and on their health um, and put them at risk for safety incidents. Yeah. One of the things I know you talk about is a socially connected lone worker. Can you share a little bit about what that means and some of the principles and ideals behind it? Yeah, I think that would be a great segue to talk a little bit about our home care workers. Yeah. Um, I say our home care workers. Um, they do kind of feel like family after, or or a part of your work team at least after working with them for many years. But we work, we've worked primarily with home care workers who are independent contractors. Um, to a degree caring for people who qualify for publicly funded in-home services. So they don't work for an agency. They work directly for a, a client or in Oregon, they're called consumer employers who qualifies for that in-home service through a state, state funded sure. program. So these workers care for some of society's most vulnerable, uh, poorest citizens, but they themselves don't make a lot of money often uh, struggle to get sufficient work hours uh, uh, and sufficient work. And they perform a very physically demanding job in isolation on their own. Um, and they're navigating this unusual relationship where their client is also their employer and can fire them or become unhappy with them. And um, mm. so it's a really complicated job and demanding job to do for you know, 13, 15 bucks an hour. So for the home care workers, I, when I first moved to Oregon and, and started learning about their job, I reflected on an experience that was really beneficial to me as a new faculty member at Santa Clara University, which was a monthly faculty forum where faculty from all over campus would get together and for a couple hours, they would discuss a reading, share issues they were dealing with, and support each other sorting through complicated or challenging work-related problems. And I thought, boy, if anybody could use that kind of support, it might be these home care workers who don't get to see other people who do their job regularly. Sure. So we, with a collaborator, with collaborators here in Oregon, an ergonomist and a sports medicine physician, we developed a peer-led and scripted group program for home care workers that brings workers together 
regularly to learn together, set goals, both group and individual, and provide structured social support. And that program called Compass um, has been really well received by workers. It's changed a bunch of safety and health outcomes in a randomized trial. And, and it was adopted by the Oregon Home Care Commission in, in Oregon. So it's available to workers as a paid training course, which is tremendous. Um, so that's a lot to say in response to the question, you know, socially connecting isolated workers. But it's like a, you know, it's a once a week meeting. We've also studied it as once a month. But these isolated workers seem to really respond to and appreciate that chance to connect with other people who do the same work. And, um, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be applied only in home care, but it, it seems to fit in particular for this type of workers. Sure. And their, their, their answers to surveys on how connected they feel with others in their profession does change and improve along with the safety and health outcomes. And you touched on the connection once a week versus once a month. Was there a difference between between both from a frequency standpoint in terms of how connected they felt with each other? My memory is that the social connection is about the same for both schedules. Um, the original monthly approach, we were thinking of, we would get them started with a year-long program and then perhaps they might continue on their own as kind of an informal monthly community mm -hmm. of practice kind of a process. And what we found getting it ready to responding to the Oregon Home Care Commission's needs was they really needed a course that could be implemented in a short enough period of time that workers could take it really like a student taking a class. And so we changed to an every other week frequency. Um, and um, so there are some trade-offs. You know, the, the sustained longer-term access to a socially supportive group is great in that monthly mm -hmm. growth for a year. But it's a lot more feasible to run and to pay workers to do it if it's like a it has a start and stop of sure. maybe a few months. And we're currently studying it as a ten week program for home care workers with uh, chronic pain. We've we've tailored the program specifically for those workers, and it's weekly for ten weeks. And so feasibility is better that way. But also, I would have to say, goal setting and engagement with goals and accountability for working on what you're working on is probably better with the weekly approach. Yeah, and I see the, the applicability to this to a lot of other lone worker groups where if there's a sense of connection to each other, right? There's, you're not as, because there's a loneliness to being alone um, and, and it creates a common goal bond as a group, I would think. Yeah, and I think, you know, these days, post-pandemic world with all the hybrid work, I think the isolation and how do you generate that sense of team and collective purpose applies much more broadly than it ever did before. But you'd have to think that the basic common structure of a safety committee is a great opportunity for uh, giving loan workers a chance to get together and communicate about safety concerns what they'd like from leadership to support their safety on the job. You know, what do they need in terms of tools? How is the work design and work hours working for them? Things like that. Um, and then also to communicate close calls like we talked about earlier in the interview. 
And so last question I have is really in terms of the monitoring of loan workers, right? So with technology, there's a lot more opportunities to do remote monitoring. Uh, there's been some successes. I've also heard of some disasters in that regard. So everything from uh, telematics to understanding how your driving patterns are to um, all sorts of tools that connect workers. Any Any thoughts in terms of value and maybe the way to roll them out? Yeah. Uh, because there's also this sense of big brothers watching that I've heard many times. Yes, there is pretty good evidence that this sort of technological intensive surveillance is really stressful for workers. So think of the warehousing workers who are on a real tight clock, you know, filling orders in warehouses. Sure. We don't want to stress out workers. Stress is bad. It's associated with heart disease, work, work-related stress. I mean, it stress is not a soft hazard. Um, you know, it really is a hazard uh, that can kill people. It's just kind of a little more sneaky and, and slow than perhaps an acute, you know, uh, traumatic injury at work. Sure. So, yeah, monitoring... I have colleagues with stories of, you know, truckers being, you know, evaluating these sort of uh, onboard monitoring systems with cameras on their faces and things like that. And I can't share the specifics of the stories, but the stories indicate that they aren't necessarily well received by workers. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the key is uh, collaboration, especially with loan workers. Um, supporting their autonomy and their participation in decision-making processes. It reminds me a little bit of a study by uh, Tim Ludwig and Scott Geller um, of pizza delivery drivers, and they studied collaborative safety goal setting and assigned safety goals. Mm -hmm. And then they measured, um, I think it was turn signal use and complete stopping behavior. In the collaborative goal setting group, the target the goal behavior changed, but so did the other one. So the discretionary extra effort for safety was better. The workers improved safety in general. Sure. Um, for the assigned group, only the assigned behavior changed. Mm -hmm. So collaboration generates discretionary effort. And we, we've seen a similar thing with um, a study of behavioral self-monitoring of health habits. One group was assigned the health behaviors to work on one group got to choose and the group that got to choose engaged in the process 20% more. So I think collaboration and choice is really important, um, especially with all the surveillance tech that's out there so that the workers feel like they're being feel like, and are really being listened to that, this is not just a tool for the employer to keep their thumb on them and to control them, but it really is a resource and tool for their benefit and safety and that they get to have a say with how it's used. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that would be my, my comments on that, that great question. It's interesting. I remember one organization that Chosen, and there's not a proper study unless you've seen one where instead of using the monitoring, this was around heartbreaking and um, so it was more the telematic side. Instead of using punishment as a result, they use it as the driver of the incentive. So your access to the bonus pool was based on safe driving scores. 
and they had a, a mechanism to drive it and they had had much more success uh, than some of the companies I've heard of that have gone the other approach of punishment. It doesn't mean you don't address from an accountability person, the person that's always heartbreaking and so forth, but that they're trying to turn in more of a reward as opposed to a punishment. Yeah, I think that speaks to maybe it's a general human impulse to react to and respond to things we don't want. Mm -hmm. um, Aubrey Daniels called it management by exception, probably more than Aubrey, but I remember hearing from it, from Aubrey about it, that you're basically, uh, you know, it's, it's easy and less effortful to just not do much except react to and punish the bad stuff. It is a lot more effortful and requires a lot more thought to mm -hmm. look for opportunities to provide uh, constructive feedback and positive reinforcement and accentuate the positive. But I do think like with the collaborative goal setting, there's so much more potential for, a, for generating a positive safety climate and a spirit of shared purpose um, and, a, and a culture of caring um, with those more positive approaches that we're all in this together. We care for each other. We don't want anyone to get hurt on the job and we're going to help each other do our best to make sure that doesn't happen. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. Really appreciate you doing the work you do in, in the lone worker space and also sharing this on our, on our podcast. Yeah. Thank you very much, Eric. Appreciate you having me. And if somebody wants to learn more, is there a way they can connect with you as a research that they should uh, way to access the research that you, you do? Yeah, you can find my laboratory page at Oregon Health and Science University, um, and that should stay active for some time. But uh, also, you should be able to find me at the Rocky, Mentor, Rocky Mountain Center for Occupational and Environmental Health at the University of Utah. Um, so I should have a presence with descriptions of my work at both places for a while um, as I join uh, Joe Allen and many others at U University of Utah to start uh, the new occupational health psychology program there. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Safety Guru on C-Suite Radio. Leave a legacy. Distinguish yourself from the pack. Grow your success. Capture the hearts and minds of your teams. Elevate your safety. Like every successful athlete, top leaders continuously invest in their safety leadership with an expert coach to boost safety performance. Begin your journey at execsafetycoach.com. Come back in two weeks for the next episode with your host, Eric Makrowski. This podcast is powered by Propolo Consulting.